to a therapist, a Buddhist, and you, a collective solution to health and wellness. My name is Luke Dubois, and I'm here with co-host Zalmal. Hello, everyone. Here's Zal. And today is a, I think it's going to be an enjoyable communal episode for us today. We have a wonderful guest by the name of George Forsyth. He is a retired police officer and a therapist specializing in mental health therapy for first responders. Quite an interesting um, career choice. We don't often see that transition from cop to counselor, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, George is a good friend of mine. And after 25 years in service, he has transitioned to everything from certified as an addictions counselor and and licensed clinical professional counselor. So why don't we bring him on board and let's get this thing rolling. What do you say? Yeah, welcome. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. So from cop to counselor, I know that's a, a catchy title and it might, it, is. it might catch people. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Welcome aboard to the um, brought to you by the Recovery Collective, a, a collective solution to health and wellness. And I think this is one of the things when we did this podcast, it certainly jumped out at me as I'm excited to bring George on for a few reasons, helping first responders, understanding trauma, and he's had quite a journey for helping those in many different forms of service. So, well, welcome. The, um, I, uh, I was a Maryland State Trooper, 1980. 19- 84, I joined as a cadet and uh, stayed a cadet for a year before I joined the academy in 1985. And uh, the Maryland State Police is one of the few academies left in the nation where you live there. We lived there for six months. Um, uh, you come home on weekends unless you get a certain number of demerits. I was quite adept at getting demerits. I think I Stayed more weekends than any other, any other. <laughs> Are you the reason they changed that model? <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine, I, I enjoyed playing around. That's generally what got me in trouble, uh, mischievous. Um, so I was in the academy for uh, six months. Um, most of my career for the 25 years, I was a detective. I did, you know, my, my time with the brown hat, standing on the side of the road, flagging people down for speeding and accidents. Mm-hmm. But uh, most of my career, I was a detective, predominantly um, undercover. I was in the uh, Maryland State Police Major Narcotics Task Force. I was on a DEA Violent Traffickers Task Force hmm. in Baltimore City for six, for five, about five years. Is that something you knew? Did you know that you wanted to become a police officer or a specific track in the police force? I kind of, I kind of knew at eighteen. I wanted. I was. I was thinking about it being a police officer because I actually signed up for college classes at Prince George's Community College. Started taking, they had a law enforcement two year program. And, uh, I signed up for that. I never completed it because I got hired as a cadet. And, mm-hmm. you know, back then, you know, college was to get a job, not just college. So I, I had the job and I stopped going to college then. I never earned that degree. Um, so I, I think, um, I grew up in Prince George's County and there were, where I grew up, there was a lot of police activity. And I always was intrigued by like, what do they see? You know, you'd see them at a house mm-hmm. or you'd see them doing something and you're like, I wonder what, what's really going on in that house or what are they really doing? So it was curiosity, uh, some excitement. You know, I was young, mm-hmm. wanted to 
drive fast and, you know, do like police officers jumping over fences and chasing people and everything. Also, I had a desire to, you know, I, I thought you'd be doing good in the world. You know, you, uh, and I still do. I still think they're doing good in the world. I, I uh, help people, especially the little guy, you know, protect the vulnerable was a big, big thing for me. So, um, I think that's what motivated me to get into the police work. Now, I, I didn't think then that I would be an undercover officer. Yeah. How did that come about? Because I don't know if you saw, you were like undercover police officer. Right. Yeah. I, I was, I, um, <laughs> Well, I, uh, early on in my career, uh, I, I met an, um, I met an older, there was an older officer there who was in kind of a fugitive unit at the barrack and he came in in jeans and a beard, you know, and everything else. And I worked a lot of part-time moonlighting type of jobs and, and that's how I got to really know him. And he suggested, Hey, you should get into the fugitive unit. It's a lot of excitement, not a lot of paperwork. You're running around getting the bad guy, but, uh, um, so I went and applied for it and I went and did an interview and they said, um, I don't think you're right for the fugitive unit. We're going to put you in something called the special assignment unit. I'd never heard of it. That sounds like a special name for an undercover. (laughs) Right. And so I was very youthful looking and they said they do vice cases, any kind of investigation that was non-narcotics, but my specialty became believe it or not, was a uh, contract murder investigations, hmm. getting hired as a hitman to kill somebody. They think you're a hitman, oh, wow. but you're not. <laughs> and uh, that is of all the, the strange ways life takes its turn. That's what I became known for was the murder for hire guy. I've been hired. I don't know how many times. So how to, many times have you quote unquote? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Uh, you know, usually a husband, you know, mm. as a girlfriend, the wife is in the way or mm. the wife wants to kill the husband for the insurance money or business partners or something. Um, and I did that for years, years. I, I did that. Uh, that must take a unique mindset to live that life professionally and then put that aside and come home to your wife and kids. Right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, where you you can't kill him. <laughs> you can't hire a hitman to kill him. You gotta work you have to work your problems out. So that's why you're a therapist. Right. <laughs> right. So the uh um but yeah, it, it, there is a balance, you know, where you're playing a role, so many different roles, so many different personas. You know, I had fake social security cards and driver's licenses and everything else, and you're always playing this uh, uh you know playing these different roles, putting these different masks on, hmm. and then you have to come home. And And it's one thing I've noticed with uh, police and even firefighters now is you have all this going on at work. You're working cases where, you know, whether it's drugs, there's a big shipment and it happens to become, okay, it's Christmas Eve. Okay, well, that's when it's coming in. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. family, Christmas Eve is, or there's a contract murder, you know, comes in. They always come in on like a Friday night. They never come in mm-hmm. on a Wednesday afternoon. So, there's your weekend, but what do you say? Um, mm. I'm not going to do that. I, I want to go home this weekend. Mm. Well, then somebody may, you know, we have a lot of homicides yeah. in the state. Somebody else may get hired. Uh, yeah. So what were the skills that were important for you? Because as you were talking, it makes me think of like people skill in a way that not only you're, you know, carrying yourself in a particular way, but also like relating 
to people? Uh, are there like some skills that stood out to you that from yes. that career? Yeah, and and they and they translate very well into what I'm doing. I was also a hostage negotiator, so that was something that I did as well. That was a collateral duty, but all of it was the same. The undercover work and the hostage negotiation work was an incredible amount of verbal skills and a credible amount of developing a rapport and trust very quickly. As a therapist, that is a skill that I do. I, I maintain that skill. I develop trust, rapport very quickly. It's not something I struggle with most of the time. Um, so those kind of people skills, even though it's, it's kind of fake, you know, I, most of the, most of the people I really worked with, I, even undercover, even the, the quote unquote, the bad guys, I liked them. You know, I, I yeah, my mind as a therapist goes, you're in that mindset, you're undercover. My mind goes compassion and empathy, right? How do right. you empathize with this person? If I want to hire someone for murder, how do I make that believable? <laughs> well, a lot of times, a lot of times you're introduced as someone who's a hitman. So there's an informant. I don't just, I wouldn't just sit in a bar and just wait for somebody to come over, or, you know. Thank look, goodness. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Looks like you're having problems with your wife. You ever considered a hitman? You know, I don't they have business cards, you know. So. Maybe Craigslist, but not at the bar. Okay. <laughs> but the, uh, um, yeah, so the, you have an informant who's introducing you, usually an informant. The typical case was you have a, a guy, a man or woman, who's not too involved with the criminal justice system. They have a neighbor or a friend or something who kind of is in trouble every now and then. So they go to him and say, look, I want to kill so-and-so. Do you know anybody? And they may even take money from him. But then they get stuck. They're like, I've taken money from this guy. What if somebody really does kill that person? Mm -hmm. I better call the police. And they introduce us. Typically, um, you know, everybody always says, well, did you portray yourself as the mafia or a motorcycle gang? Well, they have their own hitmen. They don't typically go out and hire hit. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're in the mafia, you're not hiring some stranger, mm -hmm. you know. So I would go meet him. Uh, I've portrayed everything from uh, uh, one of my first ones. I was a, I portrayed myself as a Ku Klux Klan mm. uh, member. I've portrayed myself as a biker type, you know, an outlaw biker type because I had patches from an old raid and I <laughs> did that. I've uh, portrayed myself. My typical portrayal was. I have a drug problem. I'm desperate. I need the money. You know, nothing fancy. I need the money and I'll go do it for the money. Mm -hmm. um, and then I get as much evidence as I could. A down payment, pictures, keys to the house, map. Anything they gave me was evidence. Mm. I'd ask them things on tape like what is gonna, what's your alibi going to be? Like mm. everybody's going to suspect you. Oh, I'll be out of town that weekend. You know, oh, where are you going to be? I'll be in Ocean City. You know, mm -hmm. they won't be able, you know, all that comes in out in court. It's all just body wires. Yeah. It's really fascinating because um, in, in my uh, Buddhist practice, uh, we're kind of against fabrication, you know, mm -hmm. not to create stories, not to create identities, but just to like let go, to be impersonal. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like your story is very fascinating because you're fulfilling these roles and then creating these fabrications. But you mentioned earlier about with the intention of helping, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of cool, like how to draw the line and also balance it out, mm. because you know, in in a way, this is 
kind of portraying that's not true.、Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what is motivating these undercover police is that、mm-hmm. we're doing this for the reason to help others. Right. Were there any days that, you know? Also, I'm also imagining like when you are in that scene as an undercover, were there any kind of like fear where you might, you know, it can be anything, right? Well.、Uh... I remember most of my time, most of my undercover time. Although I portrayed myself very comfortably,、uh, very confidently, I should say. But when I think back now, you know, when you can look back, and you know, I'm a therapist too, so I've had a、Knowing、lot of time to、know. reflect.、Mm-hmm. A lot, I've talked to professionals and everything else about my past and everything else. I realize that most of the time I was afraid. I was literally afraid. Most I went through life basically afraid. But there was one case, a contract murder in profession, in particular, that really changed me. Was、um, there was a guy, or really hit me? A guy was trying to hire me to kill his wife, and he was very suspicious. I had to meet him in the middle of a parking lot, you know, so he could see if there's surveillance. And it was the day we were going to arrest him. We had a team set up, and I had a body wire,、mm. and、uh, it was hidden in a pager. The body wire back then, this is beeper days. It was hidden in a pager. And I was just carrying it in my hand with my keys, and so I get in the, the car with him. The only thing I had to give the signal to arrest him. He had not actually said who it was he wanted us to kill. I knew it was his wife,、mm-hmm. but he was very careful in his language. So I wanted me, having tried these cases, I wanted him to clearly identify the victim. Remove、so、all I, doubt. So I get it all out. So I sat down in the van, and it's one of those old vans, like a. Conversion van, so it's like bucket seats.、Mm-hmm. You can't once you're in, you're kind of in. And he handed me a brown bag with the money. Classic distraction, what a magician would do all day long. And I was better than that, and I fell for it. I took the bag, opened it, looked at the money, looked up, and he had a gun. Oof, and he was、uh... like this. He had well, you can't see me, but he had the gun to his chest, and the gun was pointing at me. And the weirdest thing, my first. Thought, my very first thought was, that is going to be so loud、hmm. in this van. That was the first thing I thought. And the gun looked like a cartoon gun. It was, it was like huge,、yeah. huge in his hand. It was like all I could see was this great big watermelon-sized gun.、Yeah. And、Your、my eyes first, dilated. Yeah. yeah, and I was a big guy then. I was a weightlifter, and I kind of reflexively moved my arm that if he shot me, it would hit me in the arm. And he said. I don't think you're the law, but he wanted to make sure I wasn't going to take the money and run and not do the job,、hmm. and to let me know he's going to find me. And he sees the pager, and he had a job where he worked with electronics, and he said, "What's that?"、Hmm. And I said, "It's my beeper." He said, "Let me see it." Well, there's a nine volt battery in it. As soon as you see it, you're going to know that this is not a regular beeper. And I said, "That with a gun to me?" I said, "No." And he said, "Give me the beeper." And he moved the gun. And I said, "I'm not giving you my beeper." And it turned into an argument where I balled up all the money and I threw it at him. I said, "I'm done. You're paranoid. You're creeping me out. You can't handle it. I'm not gonna. If you can't handle this, I'm not gonna. I'm not involved."、Hmm. Well, in desperation, he, we agreed. He put the gun under his leg, gave me back the money, and we. Finish the deal,、hmm. but you know, talk about a turning point case. I, I struck, although, and I will thank you know, the guy running the wire was a guy named Larry Grasso, 
who I'd worked with before. And he knew not to come in until I gave the signal. Mm. If I don't give the signal, he knew me from working with me. If I don't say that signal word, I don't care what you think. Don't come in. And he didn't, you know, he, they would have seen, he would have seen him coming across a parking lot, you know, and Mm -hmm. so he let me out and then he drove off and then the cavalry came and stormed him. But for years after that, I was, uh, I struggled with paranoia, conspiracy theories. I, you know, I thought everybody, you know, I went through periods where everybody was against me, whether it be a relationship, whether it be work relationship, where I actually thought I, I was hypervigilant. Not so much about getting shot, just hypervigilant about everything. My my mind goes in a few different ways. One, I was on the edge of my seat listening to that story, (laughs) right? And I'll get to my potential comparison in a second. But as a therapist, I go, after that fight, flight, or sleight of hand and tongue (laughs) that you did to to save Mm -hmm. your life, not just to keep the case going, but to save your life, did at any point after that, did you have that mental exhale, right? You're saying that that led to paranoia and stuff. Did you have a chance to talk to anyone? You're a counselor, a therapist, professional counselor now. You know the importance of first responders and trauma and things like that. Looking back, did you have any of that kind of... Hey, listeners. We've got something extraordinary to share, a chance to reshape your journey no matter where you are. You're familiar with Zalmal's insights on our podcast, but there's more. Through the Recovery Collective, he offers life, mindfulness, recovery coaching, and meditation groups guiding you toward a fulfilled and mindful existence, no matter your location. Zal's journey from a Burmese Buddhist novice to a skilled practitioner equips him with timeless wisdom and contemporary strategies. Whether you're navigating life's shifts, seeking clarity, or pursuing self-awareness, Zal's coaching serves as a compass guiding you toward success. The best part? Zal's approach centers on your growth and empowerment. He equips you with tools to tap into your inner strengths for continuous evolution no matter where you are. Ready to take that next step in your personal growth journey? Connect with Zal Ma and the Recovery Collective at 240-813-8135 from anywhere in the world. Investigating in your journey reaps immeasurable rewards. Let Zal Mall guide you toward resilience, clarity, and empowerment no matter where life finds you. Now, let's transition back into our conversation. Stay tuned, stay curious, and keep your journey growing. Uh, I didn't talk to anyone. I think there were people available back then, but like most guys in that job, I simply just said that magic words. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. That's what I said. Let's keep going. Right. No, I'm, I don't have anything wrong, you know, and I didn't tell, uh, years later I did. I talked about it extensively, but you know, back then I didn't, uh, I just went like, Oh wow, that was a close one. You know, Oh man, that was crazy. And that was about it. Yeah. And I dreamed of it, thought of it, you know, all the things I hear clients tell me, you know, I can still visualize the gun. I telling this story, I can see him as clear as day. I can see the van. I can see the parking lot. I can see the Outback Steakhouse. I can see everything in there. The imprint. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Zal is a um, medical speech interpreter, myself as a therapist. Not near the same story, <laughs> but some of the things that, you know, as 
as all can interpret in a medical setting, can be life and death, and me with other people's experiences and traumas, that can have an effect. So I was going to make a comparison, if you will, but yeah, I think we're talking about the importance of whether it's a direct experience or a secondary experience, the importance of processing through that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, everything is in the moment. Like a lot, a lot happens in the moment, like almost to the point of intuition. Uh, but as you were talking to, it's so descriptive, you know, that scene, I can just see it in my mind's eye about like that scene. Uh, but at the same time, I was thinking about, uh, maybe we'll get into the story of like how you got into counseling. It all comes back to human connection. Uh, I've never been an undercover <laughs> person, but at the same time, if I were to be one, it's almost like a, like a spiritual playground in a way where mm. people are playing roles, you know, and we get into this glimpse of, you know, I mean, I'm also imagining this person who was angry enough to hire somebody to kill somebody, yes. you know, that's a lot of suffering, you know, mm -hmm. but then you see that directly, but then you're just doing your job. But at the same time, you see that anger, you mm -hmm. know, to lead that. But then you probably had some compassion too, that this is not good to kill somebody, you know? And, and that's what I liked about contract yeah. murders. You were stopping a murder. Mm -hmm. You're investigating a murder before it happened. Yeah. You were treating it just like a murder that just hasn't happened. And, and that anger, you're right. If you're, if you're empathetic anyways, you know, you, you've both experienced this, I'm sure. You can feel it. Yeah. That's the only way I can describe it. You can feel that energy. And, and, and for an undercover cop, maybe police officers in general, for an undercover cop, I could go into a bar for a drug case, which is the bread and butter of an undercover officer. You know, that's, that's every, that's what you do most of the time. Yeah. And I could go in a bar and I could feel the vibe. And I was mm. like, yeah, that's the guy that's got it. Mm. That's the guy to talk to. Just, you yeah. just feel, there's no other way to describe it. It's almost like yeah. you could touch it in a way. Well, that story that you just told, and yes, the guy was angry and a gun pointed at you, but what you tapped into was also the fear. Like, anger is a secondary emotion. You got to feel something to, mm -hmm. to feel anger. Well, there, of course, how could there not be fear? He's holding a gun at you. I think, I don't know if you're a cop, but. And then you took a lot of that fear with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it stuck around for a while. How did you make it 25 years? Well, you know, I was already through most of the 25 years, but um, I think like a lot of the guys I work with, you just keep going. I, I describe it as like you have a big barrel on your back and the big barrel on your back is full of a liquid, just cumulative, just liquid mm. of experiences. And it just slowly gets more and more and more until it's almost full. And that's when you'll see on television, you'll see a, uh, uh, or a video camera, you know, a police officer losing his temper mm -hmm. and doing some things he shouldn't do. That incident wasn't even that bad usually. And I think yeah. it's like, that's the last thing that poured into the barrel. So it's the first thing that came out mm. and they lose it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I imagine that later on when they think about it, they're like, what was I even doing? And I talked to guys, I said, you know, uh, you know, anger is an easy emotion, you know, for men. But we can project that outwards easier in some ways than other emotions. Yeah. Yeah. We're more comfortable with anger. You know, I, I, a lot of men are more comfortable 
myself included, you know, from an early age, I know how to be mad. I don't know how to be afraid. I don't know how to be sad, but I know how to be mad. I, I've had that beat into me in sports and everything else. You know, I know how to be angry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a go-to. Yeah. On the note of helping others too, I'm also thinking about, you know, there are just different means to help others because you've mentioned about, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, police route, and also you're now helping others uh, through counseling. And uh, it makes me think of like this innate human nature. It's not our fault, but then we have this tendency to protect ourselves, which comes with an aspect of isolation in a way that, oh, wait, is this person trying to help me? You know, let me mm-hmm. like protect myself. Mm-hmm. But then that skill of winning the entire confidence of the other person, which is actually mentioned in the 12-step fellowship that I'm involved mm-hmm. in, that all these people who have gone through what these people are going through are uniquely armed with facts to win the entire confidence of the other person. So I'm also thinking about that too. Like I'm sure that's a really useful skill in uh, therapy as well, that for me to be able to help somebody because I needed help, but I didn't trust anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. So there has to be somebody who can like go beyond that barrier and then relate to you, you know, through your eyes, looking into the very depth of your eyes and, and then relate. So other things, uh, I also want to hear that story of like transitioning from, retire uh, police into counseling, but I'm curious about like how those skills have been useful for you because the work that you're currently doing of helping these people mm-hmm. really puts you in a place where you can relate them and then they open up to you in a way. Yeah. Uh, thank you. The, um, uh, that's correct. That's exactly point on is the reason, you know, I, I, I do, a, I do a good job. I do a good job because I really try hard. I care about my clients and I really try hard. I'm not the best counselor out there by any means, but I understand that job. I understand that job because I did it. I know what it's like to, to have marital problems because of the job. I know what it's like. These guys, they, um, they come home from work and they call the slang is the magic chair. They don't want to interact. Hmm. They don't want to, I don't want to make a decision. You know, you're, you're talking to me about the price of chuck roast and I don't care. You know, seems I, pretty uh, minute yeah, compared to yeah, what I, I, a day's I, work is right. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't care. And so, you know, I, I know what that's like. So when they come in and they come in with the, you know, they come in sometimes angry, like, you know, I get a number of them that are in trouble and they come in and they're mad and the department's against me and this and that and everything else. I can kind of see through it a little bit. I may not directly confront them, but like, all right, I get it. That's not what he's mad about. You know, um, uh, alcohol and drugs, especially alcohol is huge. That's king with first responders. Um, I'll tell you another one is, uh, pornography, pornography mm-hmm. and sexual type of affairs and everything is huge. And, um, I, I can, I can talk to him and I can, I can get underneath of that. I, I can, I can more quickly see what's really going on. And how they can trace that back to the job they do and some of the things they see because they're, they're not really open at first with this job is traumatic. The stuff that you see, they, they almost don't want to say that. They'll say everything but that. It's so normalized. It's, it's paperwork in some ways. Right. And that's why you'll get a firefighter who's been to a million traffic accidents and one day he comes to see me because he said, I was at a traffic accident. And I went around to the side of the fire truck or I went around to the car and I was upset or crying or a police officer who says, you know, I've seen, I don't know how many suicides. I saw that one. And for some reason, I don't know why I, I lost it. 
And so I think I need to talk to somebody. And it's that cumulative effect. The stuff just piled up. And that's the last thing that poured on. And now's probably a good time to transition. We could do a whole episode of stories and maybe we'll get another one or two before this is all said and done with. Um, well, you know me, Luke. There's plenty. <laughs> I've known you for a long time. As, as you well know, there are plenty of stories. Absolutely. Um, tell us how you, you made that transitioning from a career of detective and police work to therapeutic counseling. and. Well, I... Uh, that's a huge transition. That's one of the probably the biggest questions. I, as a matter of fact, at the cigar lounge I go to, uh, I ran into a guy I used to work with narcotics years ago, and he said something that's a million people on the job have said to me: "George, if you told me that you you of all people would be a mental health therapist, I would have there not in a million years believed that." You know. Uh, some of it because of the crazy stories and things I've done, but probably true for most police officers as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there were, well, I know there was a, an early on kind of desire. I remember in elementary school, I had to see the school counselor and I had to go root weekly to see the school counselor, Miss Shears. And Miss Shears was beautiful. And I had a third or fourth grade crush on Miss Shears. <laughs> I thought, I, I thought she was, his beautiful. eyes are sparkling. Yeah. <laughs> They still sparkle when I think of her. So I would go there, and I remember telling her one time, you know, Miss Shears, I think I'd like to one day maybe be a counselor. And she said, why? And I said, because I would like to help people. And back then, they had something called happy grams. It was a smiley face, and the teacher could write a nice note for your parents. And she wrote that. George said he wants to be a counselor, maybe because he'd like to help people. I still have that. It's so important mm. to me. I still mm. have that happy gram. So I think there was a little bit of that desire. So fast forward, um, I'm a detective. I'm in a fugitive squad in Baltimore City. And uh, my son, my Tommy, he, at 12 years old, developed leukemia. And it was pretty serious. Um, you know, there was, there was some touch and go moments. And he was in the hospital for a year, uh, February to November. Had to have a bone marrow transplant. Who my daughter was, uh, Kaylee, was a match, thank God. So... During that time, I would walk from the hospital to Lexington Market sometimes to get some food and then back, depending on what was going on. But next to it, next to Lexington Market, a block up is St. Jude's Shrine, and I'm a Catholic. Wasn't really practicing as a Catholic. more practicing as a Viking back then. I was <laughs> doing what I wanted to do. But I, I would go to St. Jude's Shrine because it was a very peaceful place, and it, as beautiful the work as they did at a hospital, a child's cancer ward is a hard place to be all day. Yeah. As a matter of fact, his his mom is a real hero of this. She never left his side. Mm -hmm. uh, she is uh, has my utmost respect for that. Mm -hmm. But I would leave and I'd go up to St. Jude's Shrine. And I would just sit there. Sometimes I would pray. But to be honest, sometimes I would cry. But most of the time I would just literally just sit there. And just do nothing. Just sit Just sit there. I was there so much a priest asked me, is there any way I can help you? You're always here. And I was like, N you know, just like with the guy with the gun, I'm good. No, thank you. And uh, one day as I left there, and it was no, the day was no different than any other day. I can remember it was warm. That's the only thing. And I can remember I was on the steps. Clear as a bell internally. Not loud voice from the heavens, but internally I heard. I want you to work as hard setting them free as you did locking them up. 
Never any, and that was it. Nothing ever happened like that before. Nothing has happened. He's 25 now. Nothing's happened. 26 now. Nothing's happened like that since. And it was, to, for me, a scary experience. It was like being laid open by something that knew you so well. There was, <laughs> I can't describe what it's like to not have, we talked about masks earlier. No mask. For me, it could only be God. Opened me up like that and said, and I knew, and I knew what it meant. I knew it meant, for example, set him free. Didn't mean be a defense attorney. It didn't mean be some kind of an advocate. It meant work with addicts. So that was the the big catalyst for change. It changed me as spiritually, my, my my personal faith, and it changed my direction. There's, I always say, there was life before that and life after that. I didn't. I can't say. I honestly went and immediately ran off and became a counselor. Did you know your son was going to be okay at that point yet or no? No. As a matter of fact. Even that is powerful. Mm. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, yeah, there were, there was one, there was one time in particular that I actually contemplated suicide. Mm. I mean, uh, I don't share that often, but the, um, I, I had this thought that, if somebody, but there was two thoughts, two sick thoughts. But when you're going through that, you're not thinking rationally. So I had two thoughts that I know now were distorted, but back then it seemed to make sense. Full range of them. Yeah. So my first one was, if God should spare him, well, then somebody has to take his place. Like there's some kind of a box. Judge, jury. Yeah, like a checkoff box. Like. Mm. If okay, that I have to fill this box of somebody dying. If I have to take him out of it, then somebody has to be there. Now, to me, twelve years old, he was about as innocent as a twelve as a person <laughs> could be. Me, for example, far from innocent. Like I said, I was a Viking. I was a, I was a really good Viking. <laughs> really good Viking is usually a, not a good Catholic. <laughs> so, so that was one. And the other one was if he should die. Somebody needs to go with him to help him out, to show him around. And I actually thought if he if he goes, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. That's the ultimate level of empathy or yes. with, wow. Among other things. Yeah. But thank God he lived and uh, so and he's doing great now, by the way. He's doing amazing things. So uh, mm -hmm. uh married a wonderful he gave me a great daughter. I married mm -hmm. a beautiful young woman, Maria. So he he um so at after that I didn't immediately become I retired a year later, but I became a government contractor, making money, busyness of life. And it was my wife, who's my biggest supporter. Uh, she uh, she told me, she said, you know, you haven't really done anything with what you described as that calling. And I said, no, I, I haven't. It's been on my mind. It was literally on my mind all the time, just eating at me. And she said, why don't we just see if we can do it? If it doesn't work, then, okay, you weren't called. You know, if it does work, then maybe you were. So... I quit my job as a government contractor, making great money. I worked in Honolulu. I worked in New York. I worked in, you know, so I had a great time. And that's where I met Luke here. I took a job at a treatment center where, um, as a treatment assistant, you know, kind of like the Oompa Loompa. That's like me with my four-year degree. And I had a felony charge at the time. And they said, you're making minimum wage. Right. <laughs> and he said, you're lucky to make minimum wage. <laughs> I, I think, I don't think, I don't even know if it was minimum wage. It was $12 an hour. I don't know what minimum yeah. wage is. Mine was less than that. Yeah. <laughs> I had a felony. <laughs> uh, but, well, it's interesting. 
transitioning into this field, mm. it's the one time that not having a record and not having an addiction <laughs> has hindered me from jobs. Sometimes they're like, well, I don't know if you could really do this. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have a record? <laughs> what do you mean? You, you're, you're, not a, you're not a heroin addict? You've never been a heroin addict? Well, that is called a calling. But first, what a profound spiritual experience. What a profound higher power God moment. And we don't always hear our listeners talk about that, but that is one common denominator that in terms of a collective solution to health and wellness, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual as it can be, I I often call it a, a huge coping skill for the mm-hmm. for this whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And well thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful <clears throat> story. And also very inspiring at the same time, too. I was, first of all, um, you mentioned Lexington Market. Uh, uh, I, I used to, I don't even know how long ago it was, probably back in the 2016 or 17. Mm-hmm. I did some independent contracting, medical interpretation work at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And I didn't have a car back then. I, I was living in Annapolis in this little studio apartment with my wife. And I had to commute using public transportation on a regular basis. And then Lexington Market, I think that was like a subway station transitioning from light rail into subway. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I've ever paid attention to that, but I think if I go back there, I'll probably recognize it, that prayer. But in your story, what got me thinking is about like uh, listening, you know, like the ability to listen and how powerful listening is because it can be very passive, but then it is also very powerful, you know, because I've heard of that too, that the most effective prayers are listening. Like, what do you do when you're praying? You know, some of the famous people have said that I don't say anything. I just listen, you know, and how important that skill it is on that topic again of like helping others. And then I, I'm on the phone a lot throughout the day, like talking to people in different fellowships that I'm involved in. Um, and then like the crazy thing is that I don't even see these people and I talk. Sometimes I call them to get help. Sometimes I receive call to give help, whatever it is, it's a two way street. But then the crazy thing is that when you're talking and we, when the other person is listening on the other line, you just feel this presence, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't even see that person, but you can feel it. And the opposite is also true, that when somebody's like drifting up. Right. So like uh, that, that to me stood out about like you were just listening like on a consistent basis. And then the answer was revealed to you as a result of consistently listening. Yeah, it was certainly not expected. So you went from the early stages of addiction work and learning that field and and techniques. Tell us about that transition for you. Uh, Well, I, you know, I, I I ended up becoming a therapist because it didn't take me long to realize that uh, addiction is a bandaid. Okay. (laughs) This is something I'm doing because there's something else here. And so I felt as a therapist, I could get on better, get under that and look into it. And addictions is still my passion. It's like the, the detective work goes, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait, this doesn't sound. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the, um, uh, uh, yeah, I started um, at a residential treatment place. I remember almost right away, they threw me into a group. You know, I didn't even have an AA yet. Mm-hmm. And I walk into a room and there's 20 guys and men and women just staring at me. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't even remember what my group was. Somehow I got through it. And uh, then I just continued on. Um, uh you're a sponge for learning. Yeah, I still am. I, I will admit that. I do love to learn uh, just about anything uh, and travel, which is learning to me. So how did you begin to hone your your skills? I know you went to Divine Mercy, but tell us how you began to hone your skills and, and 
transitioning with both addiction and first responders? And how did that take place for you? Well, I, there was guys like you who experienced and some of the other staff that was there. I've always, I've always, uh, uh, listen to the people I'm around. I learn from them. I, I always make a joke. I steal from everybody, a little something from everybody. Um, and, uh, so that was a, a big learning for me is experience, uh, to do something, you know, to throw me in, go in there and do it and then stumble my way through and tell myself next time I won't do the same thing. That's the, mm-hmm. probably the best way I learn. Um, not so much undercover. Remember, undercover, there is no take two. I mean, if you don't get it right the first time, you know, but, but there was a lot of things I learned on the way even then. But the, um, and then the, of course the classes, you know, I went to, I got my AA and bachelor's and then divine, I learned a lot at Divine Mercy. I, I had one professor. Well, I had several professors. Uh, but there was, when I was brand new there, they had a res. it was online, they had a residential piece and they said, we're going to throw you in to do some counseling. So you had to role play. And this young woman was role playing a teenage bullied girl. And she was really, she could have been an undercover cop. She was really believable. <laughs> After three minutes, I had like nothing. I was just staring at her. I was like, so the professor, his name was Dr. Sharp. He came over and said, George, you're struggling. And I said, yeah, I, I have nothing. Because, you know, back then you just want to problem solve. You don't yeah. want to listen. You want to solve it. Hmm. And he said, didn't you tell me you were an undercover cop? And I said, yeah, yeah, for most of my 25 years. He said, what I want you to do with the next scenario is I want you to pretend you're an undercover cop playing the role of a therapist. Oh, I love it. Wow. Oh, I got it like this, man. I, I got it. it. I got it. The next one, I just pretended, all right, what would an undercover, what would a therapist do? And I did it. What and, a genius professor. <laughs> yeah. It was, there were some, there's some really bright professors there. And, wow. uh, I still think of that guy. But the transition in, you know, one of my big fears was I'm an open book. I talk a lot. I don't mind talking about myself. And, then, and you know, they're going to hear that I was an, an undercover officer. A lot of these, in my mind, well, they hate the police. And there's a whole nother level of hell reserved for the undercover <laughs> officer. They're the ones they really hate. Mm. And I found, by and large, they, they, they didn't. They didn't, uh, the ones in recovery, I can think maybe once or twice somebody had anything to say. And they, they mostly had questions, same kind of questions somebody who's not an addict would ask. Mm-hmm. General questions, you know, um, and seemed like it was fun, you know, it, it was fine. Yeah, it was funny as all. There are times that working in a residential treatment center, you'd get someone jokingly say or serious wait, are you an undercover cop? Like, no, George is. <laughs> yeah, just keep going. Uh, right. No, that's actually George. <laughs> I used to, I used to, love, you know, some of their, now if they didn't know, some of their stories about how they got arrested, I was like, okay, this guy's making that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one guy told me, it was like his sixth DWI, six times. And he said, he knows for a fact that the Anne Arundel County police after 2 a.m. stop every pickup truck for nothing just to get drunk drivers. So I told, I told him, I said, well, knowing that, why did you get in a pickup truck drunk after 2 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> Whose fault is that? So, but, uh, yeah, it was a, definitely a, 
definitely a transition. I mean, I I didn't even know what a 12-step group was. In the yeah. I'd heard of him from TV, you know. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm George. Hi, George. Yeah. You know, the stare, you know, the joke type of thing you yeah. see on television. I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. and I, And I only knew there was Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know there was a million other ones. You know? mm-hmm. So, so it's still fear with the transition, but it, mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know if it's a different form of fear, but fear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, known. Well, fear is something on the job I had before. It is something that you just learn to live with. It's like having an annoying friend with you, and you just have to say, uh, you know, shut up. We're going to go do this anyways. We're going to go. You know, you raid a house or something. You you don't really know, or or make a traffic stop. You don't really. When I, when I make a traffic stop on a car, when I used to, I don't know who's in that car. I know what the tag comes back to. I don't know if they're waiting to shoot me. If there's a drug raid or a raid or undercover, you know, I'd be undercover in a house. I'm the only one in there. Is the body wire going to work? I've had situations where it didn't work, you know, and I'm fighting, waiting for them to get to the door, hoping they heard something, you know. Um, you know, I've had guns pulled on me, you know, more. That wasn't the only time I've had guns pulled on me. I've been strip searched by drug dealers, you know, uh, uh, I got strip searched one time on a vice case, getting hired as a male escort. <laughs> I'm proud to say I got the job. <laughs> My friend, they were, teasing me, they were teasing me when I went outside, and I was like, "Yeah, you can laugh, but I did get the job." <laughs> That's why they call you Hang Low. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, uh, yeah, so you get to learn. You learn to live with fear. However, what I know now is. It's taking a toll, you know, when you have fear all the time and, you know, and I, it's not just in police work, you know, there's some communities where it's a violent community. They're in fear all the time yeah. and and you can see it in the way sometimes that they, they behave or their responses. They're, I think a big problem right now, like in some cities is the police are terrified. Yeah. The people in the community are terrified of each other. They're both hypervigilant, so they're both sides are just looking for the other side to as, to confirm their bias, and so and feels animalistic as a result. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a I think there's a certain argument for that. You know, it's an entire city has PTSD. It seems yeah. like you know. Well, tell us a, a little bit more now of your some of your things that you provide to all first responders, what are some, with your knowledge, your experience in so many ways and years of experience as a therapist now, what are things that you're doing in your practice to, to really help these first responders begin to recover in all forms of recovery for them? Uh, well, there's a couple. There's, um, for one thing, um, when you work with first responders, you have to get used to there is a, a dark sense of humor. They call it black humor. They'll laugh about things and you, you'll think, oh, my God, it's, that's horrible. You know, like uh, I'm not going to share any here because then everybody think how horrible it is. But I hear, I hear some of that and I, I laugh, you know. But So you have to be used to there's some black humor. It's a coping mechanism. It's the way they this is the way they talk. And that that's crossed the board. Firefighters, ambulance, police, corrections. And then the um uh so that's one thing. Developing the rapport with them, 
uh, I find a lot of times they're suspicious or questioning. They, a lot of times there's a bias against therapy that it's some kind of voodoo, feel good, you know, like when you watch these cartoon shows like South Park sure. or something else, that's how therapists. It's all the unethical stuff you see in movies right, and TV yeah. shows. I, I think it's, it's going to be stuff like that. So I, I give a lot of, uh, I'm patient, you know, I let them, I let them talk, you know, as, as much as I can. Um, I try to reassure them a big, big worry is also somebody's going to, my department's going to hear this. And if they hear this, they're going to suspend me, you know, they're going to take my gun and I'm not going to be able to work. And the guys are going to think I'm a wimp or whatever else. So I try to reassure them that, look, I always tell them I'm a steel vault. What you tell me, I'm not going to tell anybody with, with certain exceptions. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, so that's another one in developing rapport. Some of them, uh, there are small, and oh, another thing is I don't automatically assume that something they have seen or experienced is traumatic for them because they see a lot. They are able, they really have an ability to take things and put them in a compartment. They have to, they have to do that to survive. If, if they didn't, if they, if they didn't do that, then they wouldn't be able to be effective at their job. Similar to the military. Very similar. Yeah, they have to. And so, the, one of the problems, though, is they have a great ability to just turn things off. The better they turn it off, the better officer or firefighter or ambulance personnel, fire, you know, the better that they are is the better they turn off. The problem is they don't know how to turn it back on. Hmm. So they go home and they still can turn things off. And you hear the why. The wives are usually or the husbands are usually the ones that see the change. They're the ones that are pushing them to treatment. And they, I've talked to them. They say, my husband is not the guy he used to be. This is not him. Is part of the fear if they show that type of emotions and vulnerability again, that they won't be able to turn it off when they need to most to survive or to be effective? I, I think so. And I've certainly seen it. You know, once they, I, I use a lot of uh, metaphor and analogies when I talk because I think in pictures. So, and, and I, so I, you know, I hope it helps them. But the analogy I use is sometimes there's a wall. And while we're talking, we're starting to poke little holes in it and stuff's starting to come out, little holes and little holes. Yeah. And the next thing you know, there's too many holes and it just breaks. And and that's when the emotion comes out, you know, and you have, you have to be ready for it. But with anybody, but with them, True. they're really good at building a wall, building mm-hmm. walls. Yeah, I'm also curious about, you know, I'm still kind of clinging onto that part of the story of that transitioning and then the voice that you heard uh, from within. So like, um, yeah, how do you feel? today by following through what you have heard and then like letting it unfold at the same time because in a way uh, there was an answer to your quest and then you were able to follow through it but there might be some challenges through right as you're going through the day but then how how do you reflect on that like do you feel fulfilled in a way yeah it's funny you you mentioned that because um in my own spiritual practice is prayer and meditation. And that, that's a common theme I've had. I was in Rome recently and I, I was, there was a talk there. I don't remember exactly what they said, but that inspired me to think more on sort of that topic. And I, I really reflected on in the past couple of years, but definitely the past year, I think I've been at more at peace with what I'm doing than ever before in my life. 
I've never felt this much at peace. So I was thinking, meditating, prayer, kind of mine kind of mixed together. I'll pray and then I'm silent for a while and I let thoughts kind of come and go. And I saw myself in a, in a, just floating in a stream, like a nice stream. And I noticed beautiful on both sides, trees and rocks and water's nice. And I'm just floating along. And I said, most of my life, I've tried to swim to that shore, swim to that shore, swim backwards, go underwater, climb out, do this. For once in my life, I'm kind of just like, ah, just, Mm. I don't know where it's going to end. And while I was in Rome, one of the classes we taught was at the Gregorian Pontificial. It's a seminary that apparently has been there since the 1500s. So I was listening to a lecture there by uh, Dr. Keyes, who's my, my mentor of mine. And he's the Green Cross director. He was talking about, he wanted, he would let us do a visualization exercise that whoever your higher power is, whether it's, they're all seminarians, so it was Jesus, but whoever. And you're um, visualizing yourself having a conversation with him. So you have to picture what he would look like in your mind. He looked a little bit like Luke. <laughs> his, hair was, his hair was just down, but he looked a little bit, no glasses, but Look a little bit like I may be barefoot, but I am human. I'm very, I'm very being right now. So he, uh, so I pictured him, you know, t-shirt and jeans, and like I usually picture him. And then, uh, and then you have to think like you ask him something, and he responds, and you have to kind of like visualize. Hmm. So I asked him. I said, "What's next?" You know, because I'm at the point in my career. I have my own practice now. I, I've done all this stuff now, and now it's like okay, and it's a good question. What's next? And in my mind, my visualization, I imagined him just laughing and he just smacked me on the arm. He said, I guess we're going to see, aren't we? <laughs> and that's the way I'm kind of living life now. I'm kind of just in the moment, just, hey, Luke has a podcast. I'll go talk on it. You know, this is, maybe I'll do my own podcast. Maybe I'll do this. I'll just kind of go with the flow. Kind of just, it's like a stream. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> I did a, uh, and it's a Latin word, I think, that kind of meditation. And I was at a um, retreat house mm-hmm. with a bunch of other men in recovery. And this guy was doing a talk on saw through prayer and meditation to mm-hmm. improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. And he was doing this, trying to walk us through the same thing and with this group of other 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. men. And I just couldn't get into it. Couldn't get into it. And then I did it at a meditation by myself in this small room and it's I've had multiple spiritual experiences in this room and before I realized it my grandfather showed up Mm. and I'm having a conversation with my grandfather and he's like you're doing okay Luger (laughs) and I'm like I guess I needed it at that time and I remember just started bawling and just like thank you (laughs) and so that that same walkthrough with this individual or God or higher power or or that guidance was was unbelievably powerful for me yeah, so I want to look up that name to see what it was called. <laughs> yeah, I can't. He said it's an ancient. It might be an yeah. Ignatian type of thing. I yeah. don't remember. It was. He didn't invent it. It was yeah. something that's done at retreats and stuff. But yeah, I'm really enjoying this, and um, you know, in the spirit of wellness and happiness, and in this podcast, I'm also thinking about like the, the reason why I asked about like where you are and how you feel after listening and then following through is that the opposite of not feeling happy the opposite of not feeling well is not knowing my purpose in life. So like, but knowing my purpose and fulfilling, that's so, 
it's like a well from within that you feel good. Uh, because, uh, you know, people who are depressed and have suicidal thoughts, you know, which I have been before too, it's just that, why am I here? There's no purpose. But then when the purpose is fulfilled, because also, first of all, like we have everything we need already. So it's more about like going within and then discovering that and then living through that. So it's so cool to hear your story that, you know, I can also imagine that when the well fills up from within, it overflows. So like, since you're at peace, the people you're helping can feel that and you're even like effectively helping these people. Just wait. Yeah, I, ho I hope so. I mean, it's like a feeling of, the only way I can describe it is peace, but there's love, certainly. You know, my, my clients come in and I'm just like, I just want the best for this guy. Mm -hmm. He may have an answer. It's not even like me, but what you said about meaning is, and that's half the battle sometimes, you know, it's like you said, we all have the, in this country, pretty much we have all, all of us have our basic needs. If we don't, we can get them. There's no, they're, they're not starving on the streets. You can always, yeah. may not be the best, but, but then once those needs are met, there's all these other needs that there may be a need for intimacy, a need for human connection, a need for purpose. Yeah. And purpose is a, is a big one. Meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think the youth, that's one of the, re that's one of the areas we're falling short is they don't really have a, they're struggling to find meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, I say there's often work with people that have a quarter life crisis before they have their midlife crisis. Mm. I'm seeing more and more of that. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm enjoying this. We could do a whole lot more, <laughs> but mm. what advice do you have for, first responders that are listening, you know, can you share some advice for first responders who may be struggling with mental health issues, anxiety, stress, trauma, or stuff at home, like compartmentalizing that are hesitant to seek help? Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, uh, there's a, you know, part of the problem is there's an us and them. I, I know in police work, I imagine it's the same in all first responders. There's us and there's everybody else. Mm -hmm. And for me to admit I have a problem may mean that I'm admitting I'm a them. This is the enemy. For most most of my career, you know, I hate to say this, but a drug arrest that was not a violent person or anything else, that was a stat in a box. Yeah. That's it. I got, oh, I got three of them this one. I don't, I didn't, you know, I, I cared about them while they were with me. But overall, I I wanted a stat in a box mm -hmm. for most of my career. That's That's how I looked at at drug enforcement. And call it paperwork. <laughs> yeah. And just, and just paperwork. I mean, uh, you know, there were some incidents that, that really changed my view on that. But the, but the, um, uh, I would tell them that first of all, call somebody. There's a lot of resources now. Peer support is huge. Um, here in Anne Arundel County, for example, every third Monday at six o'clock, there is a peer support meeting at the, Anne Arundel County uh, FOP Lodge. It's near uh, Naples Mall, whatever that road is. It's a defense highway or I can't remember. But it's their FOP Lodge. It's not affiliated with the Anne Arundel County Police. They just let them use the lodge. Hmm. And it's just some guys that got together and they just do peer support. Uh, there's Harbor of Grace up in Havity Grace. They're a, they're a uh, treatment facility, residential treatment facility for, re for trauma and for addictions. There's a center for excellence is all firefighters in upper Marlboro. Mm -hmm. They're the same thing, mental health and addictions. 
and they can certainly call me. I'll help them find somebody. If I can't do it, I'll find somebody, you know, or I'll give them somebody to call. But the main thing is you have to reach out to somebody. The, the idea that you can just isolate and white knuckle this and just get over it, man up or anything else you say to yourself is, is not helping. So I always tell them, why not try to get help before somebody makes you get help? your department, your wife or your husband, your family, sooner or later it's going to break. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know. Do you think that stigma is beginning to change at all? Yeah, I think with the younger officers and younger people, younger especially. Yeah, yeah. Young, the younger people seem very, I don't know if it's too much, but they seem very knowledgeable about mental health-related mm-hmm. issues. Uh, the problem is the younger ones come in, they see these older guys that they're like, yeah, that's who I want to be. That guy can handle anything. And he's the first one telling them you don't need, you don't need help. Most of my, most of my clients come from word of mouth, really advertised. Most of them are word of mouth from one of the treatment centers or something else. And, um, so I know that if there's word of mouth, there's people saying, Hey, why don't you call somebody? And in just about every department, fire department, police, Corrections, the corrections and dispatchers, by the way, are two areas that I don't think we do enough with. I rarely see them. I see a lot of police, a lot of firefighters. I see occasionally, I see a few corrections and a few dispatchers, but listening to their story, for example, a correctional officer, you are the first one to everything. The fire department and police can't even get in there. It's a suicide or a heart attack or a fight. You're right there when it happens. Mm -hmm. And in dispatchers, of course, they're listening to it and they can't do anything. Hands are tied. So those are two groups I I would like Mm -hmm. to do more. But I think with the stigma, I think you're right. It's starting to, the guys are, they're they're more inclined to go get help, Mm -hmm. I think. You said on on a previous episode i've worked closely with this international union of painters and allied trades and working on changing the culture of construction mm-hmm. and they often related to these guys that have been doing it for 20 30 years that wouldn't even wear hard hat or glasses mm-hmm. no i'm not gonna put that on but right. these these people in their first first second and third years that's all they've ever known mm-hmm. so what do you mean you're not gonna wear your hard hat or or protective eyewear what's wrong with you and same thing with they're trying to do with mental health that they're more open to seeing the need. When I worked with the VA, that that there's this thing that I'll never forget and seeing all these military men and women from every generational war takes the courage and the strength of a warrior to ask for help. Absolutely. And then there's how much courage it takes to do that. And boy, is it worth it. I always tell them, you know, when they, when they make a decision, part of you know what it you know you get a person in pre-contemplation and they're drinking and part of the thing is you know okay this guy needs residential help and they go and i always make sure to tell them that is the bravest thing you could do you know because bravery in that culture is a big deal so that is the bravest thing you can do is to go away for 28 days or a month or whatever you need to do to get better and the uh and I always say I get to work with my heroes. They really are. They're my heroes. Mm-hmm. I, I I love the population that I work with. I love kind of vicariously still getting back to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. stories and everything a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
and hearing what they do now. Mm -hmm. And and also, um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, prayerfully helping them. Um, uh, think some things work really well. Uh, EMDR works really, really well sometimes. Give us a little bit more for the listeners what that means. Eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. Um, it's a, uh, uh, to see it in action, it looks like just your finger is going back and forth across your eyes, which is bilateral stimulation. Your eyes are going back and forth as you process this traumatic memory. It really works well with trauma and phobias. Phobias, of course, are trauma, but at a brain neural level. Yeah. It, I have people that will, you know, a session or two will tell me, yeah, it's still a bad memory. But, you know, maybe, maybe it's an area they have a call and it's like, yeah, whenever I go near there, I remember X, Y, Z incident. And, you know, my heart starts beating fast. I'm like, I get feel sick. I'm like, try to avoid it. Now I go there and, you know, I went there last week. I didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. That, That's a uh, powerful difference. Yeah. I mean, it's still a bad memory. Don't sure. get me wrong. I, I like to say it's like, um, EMDR is like you're going along and there's a straight line and it's the narrative of your life. And all of a sudden, some trauma comes. So if you can visualize a slash goes through this line, mm. your brain, and then you go back to the line again, but you still have this slash. And your brain says, man, that's too much. That's too much to handle. And opens up a door somewhere, takes all this data, throws it in there. I'll get back to it later. Mm. And as you know, they don't get back to it later because it would hurt to go back to it later. Yeah. EMDR, however it works, the bilateral stimulation it's like a robot goes in there and starts taking the data, putting it in the right shelves, yeah. and it the it fills in that narrative. You we'll know. do a whole episode on that at yeah. sometime for yeah. sure. EMDR is uh, and a lot of a lot of them want to. You have to get used to. There's a lot of solution focused with that population. Yeah. They like to be in control. They do not like to be not in control. If you imagine you were, <laughs> you see a neighbor's house and it's on fire and there's all this horror and there's some people laying in the yard injured and the police or the fire department pull up and they get out of their car and they're like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do either. And they start running around. You'd yeah. never imagine that. Yeah. Even if they don't know what to do, they pretend that yeah. they do. The nervous system is constantly in the emergency room. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't like to uh, be out of control. And they don't like to admit they're out of control. And, you know, the uncontrollable aspect of addiction, the loss of control, they do not like to admit. And that has a bunch of empirical research, um, which is wonderful. You also offer some other interesting, like, modalities that you provide. Hypnosis? Hypnosis. Yeah, I do. Hypnosis is great for, like we know, you mentioned earlier, there's a physical and mental and spiritual part. Yeah, I should go to the gym. Do you want to go to the gym? Yeah, I really want to go to the gym. Why don't you? I don't know. I just don't. My gym bag is ready and packed. I just don't feel like going to the gym. How about, uh, you like to try hypnosis? You know, when they, they trust you, you know, and you do it and they go to the gym, you know, <laughs> they just go and they call you and they're like, yeah, it's kind of weird. I felt like going to the gym and I went or, um, tobacco. You know, uh, uh, you know, I stopped chewing tobacco, stopped smoking, stopped, um, I've done, I've even done it with, um, certain junk food. You know, I come home every night. I don't, I don't drink anymore. Mm-hmm. 
but I find myself eating this one snack every night, every single night. Everybody's asleep. I eat this mm-hmm. snack. If I could stop that, <laughs> I could get a better control. Hypnotize them that they hate that food and they don't eat it. <laughs> I can't wrap my head around that. Oh, yeah, I, I, I tell you, and it's 20 minutes, <laughs> 20 minutes. You can see them and, and it's so subtle. I love it when they look at me and say, yeah, I don't really think anything kind of happened. I just felt real. They always feel great. That's one thing across the board. They're like, yeah, I felt really good. Mm-hmm. They all feel that. Mm-hmm. It's like a mind super relaxation. Mm-hmm. It's very much like guided meditation is what mm-hmm. it is. And so, yeah, so as a Buddhist, what goes through your mind when you hear that? I'm just. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. Pretty much like the overall conversation of this uh, for me, since I'm a. According to the title, a therapist, a Buddhist, and you. So I got to throw out some Buddhist thoughts right. here. <laughs> and I've but, thrown out uh, enough of the you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, for me, everything's all about relationships. You know, I've mentioned it earlier too in the um, previous episodes about like, I've had this thought about I just want to like leave everything and go into the forest and then meditate by myself to just abandon all relationships, which true to some extent but I still have a relationship with the forest you know (laughs) or I still have a relationship with myself you know so everything is all relationship and as you were talking too about fear all these people trauma stories you know all we're doing the healing happens when we change our relationship or when the relationship Mm. to a memory a relationship to a substance a relationship to sexuality whatever it may be when the relationship changes which can only happen with help you know Mm. uh but something happened because my story about my life hasn't changed, but how I relate to it with some uh, tools that I've used change, you know? So hypnosis is probably along those lines too, that how am I relating to this thought of going to the gym and then not doing anything about it? Mm -hmm. But when the relationship to that thought changes, I'm like, oh, I can just go now, you know? Uh, So those are the thoughts uh, that come to mind uh, for me. And also the other thing too, um, in our tradition, uh, in our Buddhist particular tradition, it's a very oral tradition, so we do chanting, and one of the tradition is, uh, the translation is protective suttas, which is like protective discourses. Uh, and then people are like, why is it protective? You know, what's so special about it? And the answer is that these discourses use the theme of what is truthful and what is loving. So that's also the theme that I'm getting out of this conversation too, mm-hmm. that when I partner myself with what is loving and truthful, I am protected. Yeah, that thought comes to mind too about like, you know, when people are lost, you know, suffering, we drift away from what is truthful and loving. But then when we get close to what is truthful and loving, you know, all is well. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I certainly love this conversation mm-hmm. today. It was a, I know, Saul and I really enjoyed having you here. And I loved it. Yeah. There's so many things that I want to get to, whether it's the more about the, first responders and addiction and pornography and, and gosh, George has a, a wealth of stories that we could keep going with. But I know at some point, I think you're going to write a book. So if we don't have you one sooner, yeah. when you're publishing your, your it's, book, it's coming. I'm almost done. We'll, uh, I'm literally we'll, almost done. we'll bring you during that. Um, thank you so much for being here. And gosh, we didn't hear about you doing the green piece can you just touch a minute on that it's actually doing? called green cross green cross um, green cross is a non-profit organization you can i think it's greencross.org uh dr keys is the executive director and what they do is once a month they have a class it's involved in some kind of trauma i think this month is uh it's a two-day class on um 
I believe I could be wrong. I believe it's a, uh, child sexual abuse or family trauma. They're, they have different trauma. They even have EMDR there. You can learn EMDR there for about $200. Hmm. So, um, they teach these classes. And as you go through these classes, you obtain higher certification levels in trauma. You can become a compassion fatigue educator, compassion fatigue therapist. I'm a, I'm a, a traumatologist. And, uh, one of the things he does is he takes you to places where there's significant trauma as a internship um, to get hours to be a clinical traumatologist. I went to Kenya for three weeks and lived on an orphanage. It was mm. great. Uh, last year, I think they went to Mexico on the border, uh, the U.S. border, Mexico. This year, they're going to uh, Romania, which is someplace they go. And then you stay and you go out in the field where there's a lot of trauma and you basically talk to people and do some compassion fatigue work and everything else. Hopefully, uh, they're doing a, a fundraiser now. Um, but, uh, it looks like there's, they'll be sending teams to Turkey, um, because they had the earthquakes there mm -hmm. and will be training. There are no counselors, therapists, psychologists. They left. Anybody with money left. There's, it's devastated. There's rubble except for these big tent cities. So we're helping train the people who live there, groups of them to go in and help with compassion fatigue wow. and things like that. And so um, uh, I've been to Oregon with them for like the wildfires or up in Oregon, but they've been, uh, they were in paradise, California for the fires. I believe they were in North Carolina years ago when there was that riot where the guy drove his car through the crowd. They were there Caribbean when there's been hurricanes. Um, uh, it's an organization I really believe in. And as I said, Dr. Keyes is somebody I have a lot of respect for. Well, George, thank you for listening to that inner voice yeah. and going with the stream at this point in your life. And we know it can be rocky and not always feel that way. And thank you for your service and your addition to helping others through therapy. Um, everything that George mentioned his contact info, some of the um, referral services he offered to first responders will be in the episode note. If you like this, please, the call to action, leave a comment, share, whether it's on Facebook, the Recovery Collective, and like and comment, and please share this with other people. This is a very valuable learning experience for us as well. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you, George. A of, uh, a quite a treat for us to have you here. Really good energy, and uh, learn a lot, and it's been great. Yeah. Yeah, and I always have room. I'd like to say I always have room for a first responder. If nothing else, call me. Maybe help you with some, just some advice, or give you some things that better suited to me. Once again, we'll put those in the show notes. And my name is Luke. And this is Zoh, and thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.